1: America, it is Eric Erickson here. The phone number 877-973-7425. Should you wish to be on the program, as always, text the word Eric, E-R-I-C-K to 33777. You can get the show notes, the live stream, the podcast, all that good stuff. Um, every once in a while we encounter a story around here that we got to talk about because it's a new story and we really, really, really don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it, but I have to because it's the news, and it's big news. The Department of Justice has released the report about the Uvalde school shooting, the Robb Elementary school shooting, and I can feel myself getting emotional. Just beginning to even think about it, it's y'all. It's awful. There's there's no partisan case to be made here about Merrick Garland doing this report. It needed to be done, and um, God bless the Justice Department for doing a very very thorough job in putting together the timeline on this. It couldn't have been easy because of what it found. Those of us on the right love to talk about a good man with a gun can stop a bad man with a gun. And there are instances that the media so often refuses to cover where that, in fact, happens, where the good guy with a gun is able to take out the bad guy with a gun. More often than not, that happens. What is so infuriating, however, is in this report, the good guys with the guns who had the badges let the shootings keep on happening. In fact, the FBI and the Department of Justice in their review, y'all it's just I, I, I just I wanna I want to read you just some parts of this for the span of more than one hour before eleven thirty seven a.m and twelve forty nine pm. There were at least 10 stimulus events, including at least six separate instances of gunfire, totaling approximately 45 rounds in law enforcement officer presence, as well as officer injuries in the presence of victims. Any one of those events should have driven law enforcement to take steps to immediately stop the killing. During that period, no one assumed a leadership role to direct the response toward the active shooter, provide situational status to responding officers, establish some form of incident command, or clearly assume and communicate the role of incident commander. Interviews with responding officers confirmed that there was confusion about who, if anyone, was in charge, what to do with the status of the incident. Some officers were confused about where there was no attempt to confront the active shooter and rescue the children. Without structure, agency leadership was unaware of the facts surrounding the incident and therefore unable to challenge the repeated decisions not to make entry into the classrooms. That's the report now. This is CNN Commentary. Then-school police chief Pete Arundodo, then-acting Uvalde police chief Mariano Pargas, and Uvalde County Sheriff Ruben Nolasco were singled out for failing to lead. Both were on the scene within minutes, but neither took effective command, the report finds. Arredondo, whom the Justice Department called the de facto on-scene commander, he is the police chief for the school, delayed help to the children and their teachers in Classroom 111 and 112, thinking they were already dead. According to the report, he acknowledged the likelihood that there were victims and deceased in the room with the shooter and intentionally prioritized the evacuations over immediate breach and entry into the room. This is counter to active shooter response principles, which state the priority is to address and eliminate the threat. Oh this is the part that this is the part here the next paragraph this is the one that's hardest to read more than one survivor recalled hearing someone say help if you need help then a child would say help and the gunman would shoot the victim It wasn't clear if the shooter or police responders invited the child to call out. The preponderance of the evidence is it was the police. So, in other words, the police went through a period where there was no gunfire and they assumed the shooter and the children were all dead. So they, instead of going into the room to make sure started evacuating other people, and then yelled out for the students, if you need help, say help, and they said help, and the shooter shot the kids because they didn't go into the room as they should have. The 911 call from Chloe Torres inside Classroom 112 should have changed everything the Justice Department said, but no one questioned what was going on and why active shooter protocol was not being followed to stop the killing. Some other officers that day were looked on as leaders, including two constables, the U.S. Border Patrol tactical team commander, who more than 30 minutes after he arrived led the deadly assault on the gunman. Although these individuals at times attempted to direct or coordinate with other law enforcement resources around them, none coordinated to develop a plan to enter classroom 111 and 112 or establish incident command structure. Extra criticism is aimed at the sheriff who had vital information about the gunman he didn't share. Sheriff Nolasco did not seek out or establish a command post, establish unified command, share intelligence he learned from the shooter's relatives, nor did he assign an intelligence officer to gather intelligence on the suspect or on the subject. At one point, Sheriff Velasco and, and Unified Public School Acting Chief Pargus, Uvalde Police Department Acting Chief Pargus, were within 10 to 15 feet of each other outside the exterior door. However, they were not coordinating with one another and acted independently. Without proper command and control, a game warden constable were taking on roles traditionally preserved to incident commanders, and yet no one challenged them. On the day of the incident, no leader effectively questioned the decisions and lack of urgency of the police chief or the sheriff. The litany of errors committed by responders that day runs from the early on with no one checking whether the door connecting the two classrooms was locked, even as that should be the first immediate approach. The critical incident report is based on analysis of 14,100 documents and 260 interviews. The team that crafted it visited Uvalde nine times and spent more than 50 days there. The report talks of chaos in the hallway after the gunsman death that could have been dispelled upon arrival by the Texas Department of Public Safety. The regional director did not, however, provide direction or coordinate with other leadership personnel in the hallway. Instead, the Department of uh, Public Safety regional director and other officers walked past law enforcement officers, bringing injured and deceased victims out of the classrooms with no identifiable purpose or action, therefore compromising the crime scene. It's just a series of errors that makes the grief of the parents that much worse. So, people... You always wonder, what will you be like when you're tested? Yeah, so I'll tell you in the the back of my mind. I talk a good game about faith, but I sometimes wonder on the day we get the results that we don't want about my wife's cancer, what will my response be then? It's, It's always easy in the easy times to puff yourself up and Say, this is the type of person I am, and then you're confronted with crisis, and how do you actually act? Will you abandon everything you you thought before? Will you wind up not being the person you think you are? Here in this incident, all these people had chains of commands and structure and knew what they should do this way and that. And when the crisis occurred, it all fell apart. And you had all these people who could have led, who did not lead, and it it took people who showed up at the scene, a border patrol agent and a constable who showed up at the scene, it took them to take charge and lead. The crises show when the real leaders show up and and take action, and these guys did – But they shouldn't have, and it made matters more complicated because you had the sheriff and the chief of police for the town and and the chief of police for schools all there doing nothing, twiddling their thumbs, making the bad calls. It took these two guys to coordinate with other police officers to storm the room. These police officers were waiting for leadership. And it finally showed up in the form of two men who weren't even supposed to be there but came to see if they could help, and they took charge. The good men with the guns didn't know how to respond, didn't know how to give direction, looked for other people to lead, and were too scared of dying themselves to go help the dying kids. And probably the process cost a number of these kids their lives. That's going to be hard for the parents. That's that's got to be hard for everybody to to hear from the Department of Justice that this is what happened. The Department of Justice, in this report, it was asked to explain what happened. And did their very best to explain what happened, but did not assign punishment or say punishment should occur things like that. And the parents are mad the Department of Justice isn't recommending levels of punishment or something. That wasn't their job. It wasn't their role. It's not what they were asked to do. They were asked by, local, by the local mayor who was convinced local law enforcement was going to try to cover up the disaster that was to just – explain what really happened. And they did that. They accomplished their purpose. And we really, there's no criticism here for the Department of Justice. There's no partisan point here. They had a job to do and they did it. There are people who are mad that they didn't want to assign, like, blame and who should be fired and who should be sued and who should be punished. They, They weren't asked to do that. And they didn't do that. But what they did is they painted a horrible picture of a crisis where the good men with the guns could have stopped the bad guy with the gun, and chose not to. And it's a really good reminder for all of us, too, that when the crisis comes, you find out the middle of the man. Until the crisis comes, you presume. It makes you think of all the other, like, like for example, 9-11. The firefighters who stormed that building and just kept on walking up those steps to make sure people were safe until the building fell. They took control and they led. They were called upon in tough times. They probably didn't expect the building was going to collapse. But even after that first tower collapsed, they stayed in that second tower. They didn't abandon post, they kept making sure people got out of that building alive. They died heroes. The police chief and the sheriff and the school chief and Uvalde are going to live as failures in that community if they haven't moved already. I don't know that they need to stick around. This FBI Department of Justice report is just awful to read how many kids could have been kept alive had they done the right thing. And they chose not to. They chose to dither. And it took two guys from the outside to storm in, grab some law enforcement, and say, "Boys, let's go in." And they did, and they got the shooter. It's just—it's—it's it's just an awful thing. It's the news; it needs to be covered. You need to know what happened. You need to know what happened. The good guys with the guns failed that day. That's what happened, until the two outsiders came in and rallied the police, and took out the bad guy. The leaders. Failed. The leaders failed. We see that too often in this country these days, where the people who want the positions are the ones
0: most unworthy of it. You're listening to The Eric Erickson Show. The perfect blend of news, analysis, opinion, and cooking. Hang on. Is that right? Yeah. Cooking. Want to be on the show? Come on, be on the show. Call Eric now at 877-973-7425.
1: Hello, America. I need to talk to my listeners down in Florida. On uh, my several affiliates down there from Jacksonville to Orlando down to uh, the West Palm Beach, Fort Lauderdale area, you need to be aware that a falling iguana alert has been issued By the weather outlets, I didn't even know this was a thing. So apparently when it gets below 45 degrees, iguanas will start falling out of the trees in South Florida. And it is going to be below 45 degrees in much of Florida, except right around the coast of Miami and in the the Everglades area. It'll stay uh, in the upper 40s, low 50s, but everywhere else... It's going to be below 45 and you should expect these iguanas to fall out of the trees but no they're not dead. They're just well hibernating. I I it, oh my goodness. They're immobilized but they're not dead. There you go. You are you're, you're you're of note now. Um, Cape Coral, Naples, Sanibel, your Iguanas are going to start falling from the trees at some point on Sunday. It's going to be cold. So I'm going to this thing tonight. It's called the Spotted Cow. It's this um, it, it's this the- theological conversations that It's a, a men's group, a buddy of mine in, in charge of this church in Atlanta, and, and they're going to put us around fire pits tonight. I have come prepared for cold weather, but I'm wondering, that, you, given how cold it's going to be, is that actually going to be the case? Or Is everybody going to stay inside? the building instead of be around the fire pits. I can't smoke cigars if you're inside, so maybe we'll go outside. I don't know, but it's cold. I have not been daring enough. Some of you have asked. I have not been daring enough this week to even make it to the hot tub. I'll tell you this. So we got this hot tub from the Georgia Spa Company, and... um. I, in the cold weather, it's great. You get in that sucker, it's 100-some-odd degrees. You're sweating when it's cold. i say your nose may get a little cold until, I mean, you, you turn on the jets and the steam starts coming out. The water gets real hot. It warms you up. It's great. You're sweating in the hot tub, and it's like 30 degrees outside. I went out there last night. I was tempted to do it, and I got out there, and the cover was frozen. There was a sheet of ice on it. And it was not yet 9 p.m. And I was like, "There is no way I am sitting outside because I got to get out later." I'm gonna try it this weekend. I, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna man up and try it this weekend because I'm sure it'll be fantastic when I get in. The problem is getting out. But you're so hot when you get out, you like your body steams all the way. It's kind of funny. It looks like you're just you're you're like on fire, smoking as you're going inside. Because we'll we'll make it work. We'll see. But it was really cold. Now I gotta tell you about Old Glory Bank, my bank. They're my latest advertiser. You know, I've been telling you these stories about like this Basel Three thing, and they want to regulate banks and stuff like that. Old Glory Bank—that's why you want to do business with them, as the wokes come for banks. And they force banks to go after you and and your, your gun purchases and stuff like that. Old Glory Bank will never do that because they are operated by conservatives for conservatives, exactly for this sort of stuff. You can get an account with Old Glory Bank in less than eight minutes. So my kids, they get all the they get this money and it's just like piles of dollar bills. It's not like they're lavishly wealthy. They've just got like. I mean, my son has like a hundred dollars collected over the last couple of years, and it's just dollar bills. It's like I gotta like open him a bank account where he can put these dollar bills, so they're not just in the house. Well, Old Glory Bank—they make it so easy. You can get checking and savings. You get great interest rates on the savings accounts too. It's FDIC insured. It is a real bank out of Oklahoma. Uh, OldGloryBank.com is the website. I don't have a vanity URL. Kind of hurts my feelings, but that's okay because I just want you to use my bank. OldGloryBank.com. I love them. They're good people. It is a great bank. OldGloryBank.com.
0: Smart, fearless, and occasionally funny. You're listening to The Eric Erickson Show.
1: Greetings my friends, it's Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Should you wish to be on the program, I would be delighted to have you. We got to move on to other stuff now. Um I just I um, I don't want to talk anymore about the Yovaldi stuff. I, I just I nope, nope don't want to. It's it's just sad. It re- all it, it it's sad. I got to I got to move on. Okay. So now can we talk about school choice for a moment because the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, has been calling special session after special session after special session after special session session, trying to get the Texas House of Representatives to agree to it. Now, it's the Republicans, like in Georgia where I am, it's the Republicans in this House in Texas that are blocking school choice. So what Greg Abbott is doing is he has decided to primary the Republicans – are blocking school choice. There's a handful of Republicans in Texas siding with the Democrats blocking school choice. All of them have been funded by the teachers' unions in Texas, and you'll be unsurprised to learn the teachers' unions are pouring massive amounts of money into protecting the Republicans who are opposed to school choice. What's remarkable to me, first of all, on this issue of of the conversation of school choice is that... Everyone is convinced it will ruin public schools. If you allow parents to leave public schools, it will ruin public schools. Doesn't that in and of itself suggest that the advocate or the opponent's school choice no public schools suck? If you allow people a choice, they'll take the choice. That's kind of a damning indictment on the present public school system in the country that all the public school supporters are like, if you give people a way out, they're gonna take it. They're they're gonna leave our monopoly. That should tell you everything you need to know about why you should support school choice. Now, here where I am in Georgia, there are two competing polls I find very funny. Um, so first of all, the uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution essentially asked people, do you support allowing uh, taxpayer funds to be used for private education? And people said, no. Now, i got to play you the audio that I always play when I come up with these, these questions. This is from Yes, Prime Minister, a British comedy back in the 80s when I was a kid. And it discusses these issue polls. So if you've ever listened to me for a long period of time and I talk about polling, like horse race polling, I still find public opinion polling averages to be a pretty good indicator of where races are heading. Issue polls, issue polls, it depends on how you ask the question. So when you ask people, do you support – they don't have any real understanding of school choice, and you ask them like the Atlanta Journal-Constitution did in Georgia, do you support using taxpayer dollars to pay for private school tuition, they say no. When you ask parents, do you support using your tax dollars to pay for your child's education, they tend to say yes, because I got a competing poll that shows that. This gets to the point for this clip that it does a better job than anybody.
2: He's going to say something new and radical in the broadcast. What, that silly grand design? Bernard, that was precisely what you had to avoid. How did this come about? I shall need a very good explanation. Well, he's very keen on it. What's that got to do with it? <laughs> Things don't happen just because prime ministers are very keen on them. Neville Chamberlain was very keen on peace. (laughs) (laughs) He he thinks he thinks it's a vote winner. Ah. That's more serious, Done. What makes him think that? Well, the party who had an opinion poll done, it seems all the voters are in favour of bringing back National Service. Well, I have another opinion poll done showing the voters are against bringing back National Service. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't be for it, oh, and of against. course they can, Bernard. Have you ever been surveyed? Yes. Well, not me, actually. My house. Oh, I see what
3: you're saying. <laughs> well, Bernard, you know what
2: happens? A nice young lady comes up to you. Obviously, you want to create a good impression. You don't want to look a fool, do you? Uh, no. No, so she starts asking you some questions. Mr. Willie, are you worried about the number of young people without jobs? Yes. Are you worried about the rise in crime among teenagers? Yes. Do you think there's a lack of discipline in our comprehensive schools? Yes. Do you think young people welcome some authority and leadership in their lives? Yes. Do you think they respond to a challenge?
0: Yes.
2: Would you be in favour of reintroducing national service? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, I suppose I might. Yes or no? Yes. Of course you would, Bernard. After all you've told, you, you can't say no to that so they don't mention the first five questions they publish the last one he said really what they do well not the reputable ones no but there aren't many of those <laughs> so, alternatively, the young lady can get the opposite result how mr. Woolley are you worried about the danger of war yes are you worried about the growth of armaments yes do you think there's a danger in giving young people guns and teaching them how to kill yes do you think it's wrong to force people to take up arms against their will? Yes. Would you oppose the reintroduction of national surveys? Yes. There <laughs> <laughs> you see, Bernard, the perfect balanced sample. <laughs> so, we just commissioned our own survey for the Ministry of Defence. See to it, Bernard.
1: It's <laughs> that perfect. This is why issue polling, it so depends on how you answer the question. So, if you survey people and ask them... Do you support using taxpayer dollars to fund private tuition, private school tuition? They say no. But you ask voters, do you support a program that allows you to use your tax dollars to fund your own child's education of choice? They say yes. Both describe school choice. And now I have a poll of Republican voters in Georgia. 71% of Republicans in the state of Georgia support school choice. But wait. But wait. This is a poll in the 14 state House districts in Georgia of the state legislators in Georgia who are blocking school choice. See, there are There are 14 members of the state legislature in Georgia now who are Republicans who are opposing school choice. Seventy-one percent of voters in those districts support it. What's notable here is this polling is done by Signal, which is one of the very best Republican pollsters and also Governor Brian Kemp's pollster. School Choice has 71 percent support among Georgia Republicans. Sixty-six percent of Georgia Republicans say they are less likely to support their legislator legislator if he votes against a School Choice initiative. Governor Kemp, by the way, maintains 77 percent approval rating, uh, an 84 percent approval rating among traditional Republicans, 75 percent approval rating among self-described Trump Republicans. So, y'all, in Texas, it's the same issue. It is support for school choice. And this comes up time and time again. This is coming up now in uh, Oklahoma. It's coming up in Missouri. It's coming up in Tennessee. Tennessee. You're seeing it even in South Carolina and in other states where school choice initiatives are being considered, Oklahoma's advanced. Missouri is trying to advance more aggressive school choice. And it is Republican legislators, particularly in rural parts of those states, that are blocking it. Now, why those – because you got to understand in those rural parts of those states, the school systems tend to be some of the biggest employers. And so they're essentially engaged in monopoly protectionism through their legislative vote. They don't. The, the superintendents of the schools come to them and say, "You you could wreck our school system. You'll get blamed for it. I'll make sure people blame you." What the signal poll shows is that Republican voters. In Republican areas, including the areas where legislators are opposed to school choice, the voters already overwhelmingly support it. Republicans, particularly in my state of Georgia, they need to go on and put it up for a vote before qualifying. Qualifying is when you can show up and run for office, and what they what they tend to do with these issues is they wait until after qualifying so nobody can run against the guy who opposes it. The Speaker of the House in Georgia needs to go on and put it up for a vote now. Let the chips fall where they are, where they may be, but at least then you can find some opponents for these guys if they're refusing to support it. you got 71 percent support, and 66 percent of Republican voters in these 14 districts say they'd be less likely to support a Republican who opposes school choice. It's a deeply popular issue among the people. Even in, in Atlanta, a black Democrat in the state legislature switched parties and supported school choice. You're seeing this in other parts of the country. Black and Hispanic moms who know their kids need a good education are moving to the Republican Party. And yet here in in Georgia and in Texas, it's Republicans who are opposing school choice. It's the civil rights issue of our day. All men are created equal. All women are created equal. But the left is now pushing equality of outcome through the concept of equity. They don't want equality. They want equity. They want to ensure that everybody's outcome is the same. That's socialism. That's Marxism, actually. It's not even socialism. Socialism doesn't contemplate everybody having the same outcome. Socialism doesn't contemplate that. Marxism does. Communism does. That everyone should have the same outcome. That's communism. Taking from those who have to give to those who have not to balance everybody out to be the same. That's communism. And parents in minority neighborhoods— Understand that life's not fair and you're not going to get equal outcome. Even in those communist countries, no one got equal outcomes. The oligarchs always wound up better than everybody else. You want to give your kid a leg up. You want to reduce the chance of them being on welfare. You want to reduce the chance of them going to jail. You want to re- reduce the chance of them getting divorced. You want to reduce the chance of them doing drugs. You want to reduce the chance of all the indicators that ha- of having a bad life. You give them a good education. People with better educations have lower divorce rates higher income, lower joblessness rates, are more likely to be employed, are more likely to have productive children, are more likely to have better lives, are more likely to live longer, people with better educations have all those things. And it's Republicans in states like Georgia and Texas who are increasing the welfare rolls and increasing poverty and increasing divorce and increasing crime by denying kids who can to get a good education. Not everybody's going to be able to take advantage of it. Not everybody's going to be able to improve with it. But why deny it for those who can? Why be communist about this and say, well, some people can't, so we must deny it from everyone? You'll improve the odds of a stable society by improving education, and you improve education by breaking up the public school monopoly. I mean, they, they, they've kind of let, let it get out of the bag. When they say doing this will hurt public schools, that means you know public schools suck and people want a way out of it. Republicans give parents the choice. Jenna, let's go to you as the last caller today. Welcome to the program. If I can fire up your call here. Uh, well i'm having tr- Hello? There you go. jenna there you are you welcome there? yes how are you
3: hi hi eric it's a pleasure to talk to you um i am i'm your neighbor here in upstate south carolina and i just wanted to share with how paramount importance it is for kids to have school choice my son has autism and when he was in elementary school at the zone we were in had a teacher that was real burned out and she kind of disciplined the kids for basically what their kicks and, and things were when um, we got him in a really good um, elementary school where they were encouraging and he flourished. And before he, we, we chose um, middle school. Um, I got to tour three and I knew the one that, that we chose was the last one I toured and the teachers there were absolutely wonderful and, and encouraging and he has absolutely flourished. That's fantastic. So I just wanted to say how, incredibly important is and one in 34 boys last i checked has autism and especially for these children that have special needs it is really important to have school choice and this is all public schools, but still right to have that opportunity to find the teachers that where he would absolutely flourish he's 16 now and he's in a wonderful school and and he's just i've seen so many improvements in him since we were able to choose which school we, he went to. That's so. fantastic
1: to hear. I wanted to I, share I, that with you. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing it. Thank you so much, Jenna. It, 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 Y'all, listen listen to the mom. Just, Just consider this. Back in 2000, I think it was 13 or 14, uh, George's governor back then was called – his name was Nathan Deal, and he wanted to expand charter schools. The state Supreme Court had ruled against a charter school piece legislation. You had to amend the Constitution. The NAACP came out against it. The teachers' unions came out against it. The Democrats came out against it. They all came out against charter schools, and the black moms of Atlanta joined the Republicans of suburbia and got it passed and amended the Constitution. It's a hugely popular issue with black parents, black moms, Hispanic moms. It should not be the party of Lincoln holding black kids back out of school choice. Anywhere in this nation, the Republicans should be leading to allow these moms and dads to give their kids the best education possible for their future. It should not be the Republicans stopping this, and yet in Texas and Georgia, It's the Republicans who are stopping it, and they need to be persuaded by any means possible that
0: voting for school choice is the right thing to do. You can follow Eric around on social media at E.W. Erickson on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And check him out at ewerickson.com. Want Eric's weekly recipes? They're super delicious. Text RECIPE to 33777 now.
1: Well, there's some breaking news here at the end of the show, courtesy of Nicole Bennett with WSB Radio in Atlanta. The judge overseeing the election interference case against former President Donald Trump in Georgia has scheduled a hearing February 15th to examine recent allegations that Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis and her lead prosecutor engaged in an improper relationship and mishandled public money. Now... I just got to say, well, let's see. Oh, yeah. I just personally think it would be hilarious had he scheduled it for Valentine's Day. (laughs) One day after Valentine's Day, they'll hear about this. Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee directed Willis to file a written response by February 2nd. The allegations came to light in a filing from one of Trump's co-defendants, former campaign aide Mike Roman, who ironically was um, was an opposition researcher. Now, Willis spoke Sunday morning at Big Bethel Baptist Church as part of an MLK uh, commemoration, and she referenced what she believed to be a double standard by those accusing her of giving Nathan Wade preferential treatment and pay while working for her. She didn't use Wade's name as she launched into the speech, only telling audience members of the historical church that the special prosecutor she hired was the same person hired in a different county to do a similar job at a much higher pay rate. She spoke glowingly about the credentials of everyone on her team. Uh, Ashley Merchant, the lawyer for Mike Roman, said, quote, I would never have filed something like this if I didn't have multiple sources to corroborate. Uh, ooh, so there you have it, breaking news, courtesy of my flagship station, WSP Radio in Atlanta. Uh, February 15th is going to be the hearing on the Fonnie Willis allegations. And by the way, if you hadn't heard, uh, Nathan Wade's wife, soon-to-be ex-wife, I guess, they're going through divorce proceedings, has uh, subpoenaed Fonny Willis to testify in the divorce hearing now. Yeah. It is looking more and more like she and he are in a relationship. She didn't ask the county to hire a special prosecutor um, knowing that the county would be burdened with the financial payments to the special prosecutor, never sought their permission to do it, and then gave that Job to a man she's in a relationship with. Allegedly. We'll find out for sure, but the fact that she's now got to show up at the divorce proceeding as well, it doesn't look good. And it would be a no brainer for the judge to toss the entire case to ensure that prosecutors don't behave like this in the future. You've got to disincentivize bad behavior, and the easiest way to disincentivize behavior like that is to throw out the case so other prosecutors in the future don't stumble into the same conflicts of interest in something like that. Uh, Even MSNBC, by the way, in the New York Times, they're not doing Republicans' pout stories on this. They're saying, yeah, this could be a real problem for this case. They put their hopes in a case as opposed to an argument to persuade voters, they're
0: basically don't trust the voters. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus,